Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Michael Minkoff and Allison Knight, your hosts for this art history theme season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheArts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. This is Ceci n'est pas un podcast. Oh man, this I feel like between the last this teaser is, and this, this teaser, is not a podcast podcast. <laughs> this is not a podcast podcast. I feel like between the last teaser and this one, we're 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 really being pretty lazy. So we're gonna have to step up our game with. Uh, we'll step up our game, guys. All right, we probably won't step up our game. <laughs> we probably won't. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> this is this is slowly devolving. <laughs> so that teaser was based off of a. Painting by Rene Magritte. Rene Magritte mm-hmm. called Ceci n'est pas une peep. Which is, this is not a pipe, and it's a painting of a pipe. Yeah, it's called The Re- Treachery of Images. Rusty, says in there Rusty told us that it's called The Treachery of Images. Yeah, basically, the idea being at this point, we talked about it a little bit before with uh, realism and impressionism that there's more of a movement toward paint on canvas and a rejection of the illusion of representation and representational art and a flatness. There's a flatness to it. Well, when you get to modernism, that becomes pretty direct and pretty explicit, where with René Magritte, his painting basically is saying, this isn't a pipe, it's a painting of a pipe. Um, and it's a commentary, I guess, on the uh, treachery of images and the failure or the limitations of representation. And um, so, yeah, Rene Magritte was a fairly famous surrealist, probably the most famous surrealist uh, within the modern uh, era would be Salvador Dali, which you've probably all seen some of his weird images. But uh, Allison, um, we talked about the fragmentation, but I mean, this is where fragmentation really becomes massive. You had a whole list of all the different art movements during mm-hmm. mar- modernism. Yeah. It's like 70, right? Yeah, over 70. The modern art movement happened between 1860 and, uh, 1860 and 1945 and houses over 70 movements. And it started with realism and impressionism, which usually those are kind of Really, all of the modern art movements are kind of talked about individually, but they all technically are modern modern art. And so many of those famous movements that y'all, y'all would probably know, uh, post-impressionism, pointillism, where you literally just make points on a canvas and it creates an image. It's really great. Symbolism, Art Nouveau, Cubism, uh, Picasso is most well-known with Cubism. Surrealism, like... Michael was talking about abstract expressionism, minimal art, photorealism, etc. There's so many. And of course, we won't be able to talk about all of those, but we're kind of going to first highlight Picasso and Cubism. We'll then talk about Duchamp, and then we will end with Pollock, uh, famous for abstract expressionism. And 
just really briefly because, <clears throat> excuse me, because Picasso is so famous, we felt like we needed to, but we don't want to sit on him too long just because there's other great modern artists to talk about that, in my opinion, are a lot more fun to talk about. But Picasso, uh, you know, is really funny because he's known for his abstract representations of figures and objects. <clears throat> and so many people would say, you know, they look at abstraction and think, my child did this. And the reality is Picasso was actually uh, a trained artist. He could have painted many traditionally conventional works of art that you would have seen in the academies. Uh, he was trained, very well trained. And he purposefully chose to abstract his work, which is what makes him so innovative and modern. And if I could sum up cubism, I would give you the image of, you know, imagine Michael as a figure <laughs> chopped up and re wow. re put back together uh, and thrown on a canvas. Mm. Very, it's it's familiar in that you know it's Michael's figure, but it's distorted in that it's not his real representation. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that maybe was morbid, but. Yeah, Gives I you didn't a know that you wanted me to be chopped up and thrown on a canvas. <laughs> this is cubism. Come on. <laughs> so Picasso started cubism with this distortion of figures and made them geometrically abstracted and distorted because he chose to. And so it was purposeful, and uh, but it, it wasn't just because he was untrained. Right. And all he could do was abstraction. He was trained. He could have painted a portrait of Michael could have done and it could have been per perfectly precise. Yeah. Uh, and we, that's what makes him modern. And we have to talk about this to some extent with modern art and with abstract art, because I think that a lot of people don't get this at all. Um, and it's not their fault. It's not our fault. It, 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 you, when you go to art, you want something pretty. That's what you think. Art is about beauty and aesthetics. And when you get to the modern movement, they pretty much just dumped Aesthetics, Forget convention. Right, and convention and all that kind of stuff and made up their own conventions um, to a large extent. There's a website you can go to. It's pretty funny. It's entertaining. But it's uh, basically it shows you two images. On one side is is the image of a like two or two to five-year-old uh, two to five year olds art and on the other side is modern art and you're, you have to try and choose which one is uh, kids art and modern art. And it's pretty funny, but I think it, it misses the point that you were talking about. That there's a difference between the limitations of necessity and the limitations of choice. When somebody does something other than they have to and they've made a choice, then there's intentionality involved, which means there's meaning involved. But I'm not going to take the ramblings of my children, for instance, and say, oh, there's so much meaning in this. He's trying to express stream of consciousness speech or he's, you know, with all of the sputtering of these words, he's trying to express how his mind is slowly shutting down or he's not able to encompass or understand all of his experience or anything. I'm not going to mm -hmm. say anything like that. I'm just going to say he doesn't know how to talk yet. But once a person does know how to talk and begins to choose within that or does know how to paint and begins to choose within that, then you have an int intentionality which creates meaning. There's meaning in those choices now. And because there's meaning in those choices, I can start to analyze and consider them. That's not to say that all modern art is worth being considered. 
any more than any other art is worth being considered. And honestly, I don't want to force anybody's hand. If you think modern art is really, really, really terrible, uh, then, you know, I guess uh, look at something else. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you know? But what we do want to do with this episode is give you a little bit of the background on how modern art developed, why it came about the way it did, which I hope you're already sort of you should already have at least some idea from the previous episodes because modern art is the culmination of a lot of the disillusionment, individualism, fragmentation that has been developing up to this point. And, and it's the boiling over a lot of a lot of those things. Um, one of the parts of modern art uh, that's important, you heard Allison talk about the date ranges from 1860 to 1945, which is like, oh, that's interesting. That's that is the three major modern wars right there. That, mm-hmm. that is the umbrella over the three major modern wars. You have the first modern war, which was the war between the states. That started in 1861 and ended in 1865. And then you have uh, World War One and then World War II, which ended in 1945. And so between those three major wars, I think it's hard for us to understand what a massive impact those wars would have had on our perspective on the world. Um, Pragmatism as a philosophy, for instance, most of the people in America who began the pragmatic movement, the pragmatist philosophy movement, um, were either fought in or had family members who fought in the war between the states. And we think oftentimes of the war between the states as part of those bygone era or whatever, but it was the first time where people were still lining up in in ranks but being shot at with guns Mm. and being mowed down with machine guns. And it was the first time we have Sherman coming down and just, uh, you know, modern warfare where he was actually making war on civilians as well as on combatants. And uh, this happened during a time where you think this is the end of the romantic and the beginning of the non-romantic. Well, remember romantic was from romant, which means tale of chivalry. That was the end of chivalry. There was no chivalry at this point. At, after after World War after um, the war between the states in the United States, chivalry as a concept was viewed as not practical. That you know it had caused a lot of people thought the idea this emphasis on honor had caused this war, and people said, "No, never again. We're not doing that again." And so that's when you start having you know John Dewey, Charles Sanders Peirce. Uh, William James, they created this the philosophy of pragmatism, which has basically been the reigning philosophy in America ever since. And it was birthed directly out of the war between the states and the disillusionment that they felt. That had a massive impact on the arts as well, on the indifference of nature, right? Whereas romanticism talks about how nature is this source of God's love and care and majesty and grandeur, all of a sudden you get into the modern era and they start talking about how nature looks on coldly while man's, mankind suffers. Mm-hmm. So if nature is the source of, is a, a picture of God's relationship to man, then God doesn't care. God doesn't care about what happens to us. He doesn't care that we're suffering. He doesn't care. And, and, and the madness and the chaos and the meaninglessness is all we have. And um, so that begins in America, but it spreads over uh, to to Europe. Um, and the you have World War One and World War Two. If you read the poetry that was written, the paintings that were painted, um, you start having just an emphasis on absolute brutality, mm. on just brutal the brutality and randomness 
meaninglessness and chaos of life, which, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, they needed to have hope. It's kind of hard to have hope. I mean, read All Quiet on the Western Front sometime by uh, Eric Remark and just consider what would it be? I mean, in the prologue to that, he said, this is written for all those people who, uh, though they survived the war, were destroyed by it. And, you know, you had all these people coming back from World War I, having been in trenches and bombed, 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 bombed incessantly. You know, the ground and the trees and the earth and everything just becoming slowly cratered and barren. Um, no man's land between the trenches of just barbed wire and death and dead bodies and bloating and putrescence and rot and no food to speak of, really. And what food you had, there were people eating rats in the trenches because they didn't have food left. You have people that are, you know, knee deep in, in mud and, and everything else. You know, it's just like this is a terrible experience. If you went through this experience, you'd come out at the other end very, very different. And um, I think it's important to recognize that the war wars and the horror and meaninglessness of those wars is the foundation of modern art in mm -hmm. many ways. Yeah, I think I find modern art rather refreshing, though I wouldn't say in the grand scope it's my favorite to look at, but I find it refreshing because they are honestly just honest. Mm -hmm. It's really raw when you start to look at modern art and because it really is less about what you're looking at and it's more about the concept. Uh, it's very commentated. I mean, it's all commentary on life and this is what real life is like. Here you go. There's no more filters. Mm -hmm. We're going to tell you how it is. We're so we're done with the institutions. We're done with the rules. We're done with all of it. Um, and in many ways, they're kind of, they're done with God. They're just like forget it, forget it all. Here's our real thoughts, uh, and we're going to tell you through visuals. And um, and so in that sense, it's refreshing because there's no facade. Modern art just kind of puts it out there. Here's here's what it is. Mm -hmm. And you can like it or you don't like it. And to be honest, a lot of modern art is trying to disrupt your comfort mm -hmm. and what you like. They almost want to make you feel uncomfortable and agitated, and they want to disrupt what you like uh, because they're trying to do something. Uh, Is that so bad, though? No, I think it's great, and um, <laughs> but that's my opinion. Uh, I think it's a good lesson, actually. Okay, keeping in mind that it is good for us to maintain hope in all areas of life because we have hope, and so... For Christian artists, I think this is a good call to be authentic and honest in your work and really depict life and what you're trying to say, even if it's not great. Like, what are you act, what is actually happening in your life or what you're observing about life? Show that. And I think also, and this is where a lot of modern art lacks. But I think it's important for Christian artists to also show that there is still hope. You know, like, mm -hmm. here's how life is, and here is the hope we have. Right. We're not willing to shy away from it. And we've talked about this before, Justice and I have on the podcast, um, just why the church needs more ugly art. Yeah. Um, that, that the church actually no does more facades. need to show that they understand sin— before anybody will believe that they have an, a salvation to offer. Like, saved mm -hmm. from what? What are we saved from? Right, which Let modern us... art would 
would show you how deprived we all are. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just lack the hope. <laughs> right, exactly. They, they lack a solution. Right. But at least they're on and us, honest enough to say, we don't have a solution. Yeah, and this is how messed up it all is. Right. And, and on the other side, the church is saying, we have a solution for a question no one's asking. Uh, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's very important, I think, to learn from that in those terms. But it's also important just to, to get it, you know, to get the idea, modern art is a lot more about the concept. Yes. For the first time, uh, the technique, the skill, people have got ti- I've gotten tired of a uh, perfect technique. It's like anybody can do that. You know, you have Picasso who did have perfect technique, and he's like, I'm tired of this. It's boring to me. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of masters get to that point. Mm-hmm. Michelangelo got to that point. If you look, you can look them up. If you look up Michelangelo's final sculptures, uh, they're weird. They actually <laughs> look like modern architect, uh, like modern sculpture. Like, and and I don't know whether it was just because he got so sick and tired of doing the same thing that he just mangled all these faces. But I mean, they look, they look ugly. <laughs> they really do. And I maybe they weren't finished. Yeah. You know, by the time he died, but it looks like they couldn't even be finished in the way he had finished anything else. They they look like a man who is maybe starting to break through to an entirely different style and has finished the style that he already mm-hmm. had perfected. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you yeah. know this. I mean, you could perfect something and you know how to do something and somebody's already Moving done on. it. Moving on. Moving on. Yeah. Right. You're going to move on. You're going to say, okay, well, what can we do? And the modern modern art era, I mean, you see it with 70 movements and all these other things. This is a time when artists are really trying to do something new. Mm-hmm. It's it's a time of let's try and do something that hasn't been done before. Yeah, very ex- experimentive. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit, a yes. bit about uh, one of my favorites, Marcel Duchamp. Duchamp. <laughs> oh, he's He's great. fun. He is fun. <laughs> he is fun. And a lot of people don't like him, and I understand. But because he's like, thumbing his nose at them. Right, which you know? is actually really great. Yeah. And uh, I feel like many artists can relate, probably. Yeah. So, Marcel Duchamp, he's French, and uh, he is most well-known for the fountain. Uh, he made the fountain in 1917, and some of you probably know of it. If not, I highly recommend you look it up, because Marcel Duchamp literally took a urinal and turned it <laughs> over and then signed, signed it our mutt and the year <laughs> and called it the fountain and he submitted it to the society of independent artists which this is where it gets good because mm-hmm. he was a part of this society of independent artists that said that they were required to accept all submissions to the society and so Marcel Duchamp takes what he calls a ready-made object and changes it, signs it, submits it, and really questions the what is art mm-hmm. and really challenges them. And of course, they don't want to accept it because mm-hmm. it's a urinal. And his point is, well, why, why would you not? Not only is this your rule, but also who, who are you to say that this isn't my art? Yeah. And it can't be done again, really. No, it's, it's like one it's of those. Done. It's one of those. It's one of those gags <laughs> where it's try. like once you've done it once, it's been done. Yeah, and you know, clever, great idea. Yeah, can't be done again. It is a. It, he did cash in on centuries, actually, totally. of dialogue totally. with that. 
and, and all the academy dialogue, oh, everything. totally, all the conventions. It's like, what is art? You know, um, <laughs> it's paintings of horses. Um, anyway, they uh, he did cash in on all of that dialogue with this piece because the question is, who are you to set the boundaries of conventions? Your conventions are arbitrary, and mm-hmm. truly. I mean, if we're going to be frank, he's not wrong. He's not wrong that human conventions are to a great degree arbitrary. And you can understand how people would get really sick of etiquette and manners during a time when people had just spent a whole lot of money and energy blowing each other up. Right. Right? It's like you say you're so mannerly and that these et- this etiquette, you know, like you think about the classic British manners, Right. Um, and and society and civilization, you know, like so delicate that we have to put little runners around the ankles of our uh, tables because we don't want anyone to see their feet. <laughs> you know, because feet are scandalous. Um, <laughs> you know, so you're coming out of this. Legitimately was a thing. <laughs> yeah, it was a thing in the Victorian era. And coming out of that uh, Victorian age, you know, you have people just saying, you know what, like your conventions are actually arbitrary. Um, there's even in, in 1905, this is slightly before uh, the, uh, Duchamp, you have Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, Rites of Spring, which he, uh, the Ballet Russe, which was a Russian ballet company, uh, came over and performed this in Paris in 1905. That was the first performance. And they got booed off the stage because Stravinsky basically had taken all of the conventions of ballet and reversed them. He had just reversed them, exactly reversed them. So, oh, usually you splay your feet out in first position. Well, my in my, you know, position or whatever, they're going to have their feet pointed in and their backs are not going to be straightened, they're going to be hunched and I their arms it. are not going to be. And so he did everything that was set up for the conventions of ballet. He did the opposite of those conventions for his ballet, Rites of Spring, and people were outraged over it. 1917, you're still having the same conversation with Duchamp where he's putting you know, turning in a urinal as an art piece and saying, "What?" You know, like which to the person who invented urinals would say, "This is my art." Yeah, I worked really hard <laughs> on that. I made this. I designed this. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's for sanitary. You know, it's sure, for waste, functional. and it's seen as a sanitary, you know, object. But Duchamp's really challenging that, and the Tate Gallery uh, says, uh, "quote The creation and submission of the fountain can thus be seen." as in part as an experiment by Duchamp, testing the commitment of the society to freedom of expression and its tolerance of new conceptions of art. Mm-hmm. And I would say that is modern art, uh, testing freedom of expression and tolerance of new concepts. Mm-hmm. And uh, Duchamp actually really reminds me of another artist named Piero Menzoni, which is probably very unfamiliar to uh, most people. But uh, just briefly... He's similar to Duchamp in that he really challenges not only the question of what is art, but he challenges uh, the patronage of art. People mm-hmm. who the people who are buying the art, the wealthy, the aristocrats. Uh, we still see that kind of mentality continued out through history, and it's still true it's today. Still going on now. Um, but Piero Manzoni was like, you know, you want you want a piece. Basically, people were wanting his art because he was a great artist. And he's challenging them, and he, you know, ends up putting his own poop in a can 
and puts his, signs his name on it like he would sign a piece of his own normal art and he submits it you know and it's like if you want an intimate piece of my art why would you not want an intimate part of me here's my signature that you'll spend millions of dollars for uh and, and he's really challenging the did it sell for millions of dollars no it's probably I worth millions of dollars now though. oh totally yeah. yeah i mean it's it's again this concept it's challenge it's ex- experimenting it's it's really pressing against tolerance and it is kind of calling out this culture of the arts you Mm -hmm. know what people will pay for a jackson pollock painting which we'll talk about and jackson pollock's great once you understand his work but um i still don't like him but that's fine a lot of people don't you don't have to (laughs) i don't think i really do either but uh you know what is art and to what extent will people do for a name mm-hmm. and less for a piece of art. Mm-hmm. What is what is the name uh, having something by a famous artist do for you? Mm-hmm. And the extent that people will go for for quote unquote that kind of art. Right. And you you do you're going to get in with modern art especially into the idea of art has no utility. Mm-hmm. Like that even the idea that utility in itself is a crass concept mm-hmm. to most artists in the yeah. modern era. Um, it's really art for art's sake. Art at this for point. art's sake, and and even art for con- concepts' sake. Yeah. Not even art for skills' sake or beauty's no. sake or anything like that. Just it's all about the concept. And if you can look at it that way, you might start to appreciate it more. If you yeah. say, "What is the concept? What is what what is what is being attempt? What are they attempting to communicate?" Oftentimes, about art. This is where art becomes very self-reflective, yes. very reflexive. Great way to put it. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes they're commenting on art itself. Like the fount, the fountain by Marcel Duchamp is a commentary on art. It's an art piece about art, t- very explicitly. And so, uh, a lot of the artists at the time were working like that. But um, tell me a little bit about Jackson Pollock and why you're a fan. Um, for those, everybody's seen Pollock, Pollock's yeah. work pretty much. I mean, it looks it's like it's okay if you haven't, but we recommend you Google search him. You probably have. You may yeah. not have known. It basically it looks like somebody uh, took a drop cloth <sighs> and painted two hundred thousand houses over a thirty-year painting career with various different colors, and just whatever spilled down on the drop cloth, they framed, <laughs> and that's your. That's painting. a good way to put it. <sighs> Well, that's not what happened. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty much what happened. <laughs> so, well, kind of. I mean, house paint. Yeah. Pollock, uh, his career was actually really short. He uh, is an American. He was an American painter. Uh, he painted from 1936 to 45. He actually died of a alcohol incident, one car accident, and kind of similar to Van Gogh. You know, it's like these famous artists have tragic lives and their stories just never end well, but... They're still known and talked about, as you can see. Uh, yeah, Pollock's kind of known for being the splatter painter, which more appropriately would fall under the modern movement of abstract expressionism, which really was about, yes, abstracting reality, uh, but being expressive within that. So Pollock uh, would, he used ordinary house paint and big brushes, and he laid a canvas on the floor and he would take his paint and move and he would be expressive with his body and 
while holding the paintbrush would just let the paint fling across the canvas. And so in a lot of ways, he just kind of danced with his canvas and with paint. And Sometimes, too, he would hang up a paint can with and, dripping paint yeah. painting, dripping out of it and would just get it to swinging. Yep. And it would start to create chaos patterns, but mm-hmm. geometrical mm-hmm. based on gravity and what was left in the can. Yeah. And it actually, you know, it creates patterns. Yeah. And so and I, I like his art in that he lets the medium kind of work for him mm-hmm. uh, rather than him controlling it. He kind of lets it fall and we see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I like that concept, and I like the concept of him using his body as the means of creating the art rather than just sitting at the canvas, you know, poised hand, stroking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's di- I mean, you haven't seen this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pollock also really, I feel like his, his paintings actually are a full representation of him. You know, they're full of color. They're full of personality and they, you know, have, he stepped on his canvases and left foot marks and he would let his cigarette buds fall on the canvases and they would dry. Like there's cigarette buds on his canvases and they're chaotic. You know, his life was chaos. I'm sure there's alcohol stains on some of them, you know, while he's drinking and I'm sure and painting. So I feel like they really capture him as a person. And I love that because I think art should capture the artist and I think that is you know a lesson for the artists listening uh that let yourself be known within your art and be vulnerable with it and let it capture you let it be a representation of your life and what what you're doing and not just a representation of some idea you have or something else you're pursuing and so I think Pollock did that well probably without intention yeah. Uh, but it's it just really actually captures who he is as an artist. Well, in the expressionism you're talking about, <clears throat> last episode we uh, briefly mentioned Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. And actually there's a, a really interesting uh, concept in terms of expressionism from uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, who was a commentator and, and writer academic who wrote a piece on the difference between um, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And basically, he thought the central difference is that Dostoevsky allowed his characters to determine their own arcs. And that Tolstoy, all of his characters were just versions of himself. Mm. And that's one of the magics of Dostoevsky. One of the magical things about reading Dostoevsky is you. it seems like the characters have a life of their own. And that Dostoevsky is seeing them, you know... And writing and recording from outside of them, but that he doesn't really have a huge amount of control over them. And I think with with expressionism and modernism in general, there's more of that desire to um, let art become an expression that is both a personal expression, but also somehow outside of yourself. That is that is that has expanded beyond just your own personal expression. Because realism and impressionism are much more subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, with modern art, you almost have this, uh, this in- intense longing for something beyond oneself. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if they, I mean, there's also a hopelessness concerning that, um, but still a desire. 
still a longing and a desire for something beyond. Is there something? Is there something beyond myself that means something? I hope there is. You know, like seriously. Yeah. With a lot of these guys, there is this desire to have something beyond themselves. And as we move into the next episode, we'll be talking about existentialism, which is that intense longing for something beyond yourself that means something, while at the same time, a certainty that there isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, and that, to me, is one of the saddest eras. Yeah. And uh, really just one of the saddest moments in the the final capitulation of civilization to this disillusionment. And we've seen it. I mean, we've seen disillusionment in its pendulum swings, right, up to this point. We've seen it beginning even with the classical era, this great hope that this humanism, that this collective humanism is going to be able to accomplish standards that are long-lasting and able to stand the test of time, you know, timeless conventions. And here we are through all the pendulum swingings of different institutions and different conventions and different standards failing to deliver. And here we are at modernism, right at the cusp of completely saying, you know what, they're, everything is meaningless. Like we're getting there. Yeah. We're not quite totally. there. Totally. But we're very much getting there. And from existentialism and then to postmodernism, you bas- you see basically, and we're still in it. That's where we are. You see, that's where we are as a society in a time where there's, I think, a growing longing uh, among a lot of uh, people in our generation. But uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. But it's important to, you know, track. We got to track with this. This is... There's there's pendulum swings in all of these eras, mm-hmm. and the, but those pendulum swings are not just cyclical and uselessly cyclical and circular. There actually is a helical structure to these pendulum swings that's moving somewhere and getting somewhere. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, why do you not like Jackson Pollock's work? Well, because I mean, art to me is about intentionality, and there should be intentionality, and it's sort of like with Marcel Duchamp. If Marcel Duchamp had made a career out of ready-made objects uh, entirely and hadn't done so many other things like Nude Descending a Staircase, which I think is awesome, fascinating and yeah. awesome. Um, but if he hadn't done so many other things, it's kind of like Rothko's color field studies. Yeah. It's like, dude, once you've done two or three of these, like <laughs> do something else. This is so boring. And Pollock, <laughs> I don't really feel felt like did anything other than what I consider to be a gimmick. Once you've done one or two of them, it's like you've established the concept, you've established the idea. But I think you're right that it was that was what he did because that's who he was. Yeah. And so the work all the way till the point where he died, um, you know, in tragic circumstances, was the chaos of his life mm-hmm. on a canvas. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I guess there's an honesty to that yeah. that I can appreciate. But at the same time, from an artistic standpoint, it doesn't really do a whole lot for me. Uh, after the initial ideas have been digested, I'm like, all right, I don't, I don't need 50 or 100 of these. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I, I feel that way actually about a lot of modern art, <laughs> where it's like it's a good idea and yeah. you got it, but then you got your name was made on the basis of it, so you had to make a bunch of copies of the same idea. Yeah, and it, and um, we'll talk about this in the next episode or the episode after that when we talk talk about pop art and mm-hmm. pop culture. That really, that's what Andy Warhol was commenting on. Totally. Um, that, you know, you became popular on the basis of a concept and then you started mass producing it. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that 
uh, Pollock was that disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still the case that 50 pieces down the road, I'm I'm left feeling like do yeah. something else, anything else. Yeah. I think Warhol, which we'll get to, is similar to Deschamps in that he is, again, questioning the society surrounding the art culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, he's commenting on consumerism. Consumerism. And... Which becomes the new model which for becomes, the support of art. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. then you have him sitting in front of a video eating a, a cheeseburger. King. Yeah. And people love it because yeah. it's Andy Warhol. Right. And it's and a it's piece snarky. of... It's, yeah, it's his art. Mm-hmm. And so it's just fascinating. There's so much good stuff to talk about still. Yeah, we will get to more of that. We have a few episodes left to do that. And uh, we also want to tell you, start telling you now, that we have mailbag episode, um, a mailbag episode coming up at the end. So episode 10, we're going to answer your questions. And so if you send us questions, you can do that on our website or you can email us. Or if you know who I am and you have my number, (laughs) you can call me or text me (laughs) or whatever. And I'll make sure that the questions get to the... uh, you know, the proper parties, and we will answer your questions, uh, as many of them as we can, uh, for 30 or 40 minutes uh, for episode 10. So, if you have questions and they're starting to arise, go ahead and start developing and sending those along, and I'm going to start collecting them. So, I'm going to give you a little reminder uh, at the end of every episode here on out, just so that you can keep thinking about this, but... We're definitely getting close, so go ahead and yeah. send us some. Um, Gird your loins. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to finish with another song from Phil Hodges on the classical guitar. He's not a huge fan of uh, modern music uh, and modernist music, and it's only going to get worse for him uh, in, here on out. So uh, <laughs> he picked a song that he thinks has some degree of the dissonance and the fragmentation that is a hallmark of, uh, or earmark, whatever, of modern music and art, but uh, also has maybe a little more of that aesthetic uh, likability that you're used to. But we still wanted to give you a a taste. So here, here you go. Here's your taste.
What you just heard was Prelude No. 1 by Brazilian composer and guitarist Heitor Villa-Lobos, who was born in 1887 and died in 1959.